Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. We are three weeks in to 2021, believe it or not, kind of crazy, but we are only one week away from the March for Life. Next Friday, January 29th, is the 48th March for Life, but it is the first ever virtual March for Life. So if you haven't heard, uh, the March is no longer happening in D.C. because of COVID and all the craziness. Uh, but Jeannie Mancini, who has been on this podcast, she's the president for March for Life. She has an amazing team. They've all worked so hard and they're transitioning all of the March for Life events to an online virtual platform, which you can participate in. They have an amazing lineup of speakers. You can watch them all online with thousands of other pro-lifers from all over the country and even the world. I am personally super excited to hear from pro-life advocate and former NFL football player, Ben Watson. He played for the New England Patriots, so kind of a fan. Uh, (laughs) Matthew West is also going to be performing. It's just an amazing lineup. These are people that really carry such a heart and a passion for life. So you're going to want to tune in and hear all of these talks on the 29th. Usually there's something called the Rose Dinner in the evening after the March, and tickets are normally pretty expensive. But this year, because everything is online, the tickets are only $25. In Virginia, Tim Tebow is the keynote speaker. And you mentioned Ben Ben Watson played for your favorite football team. Tim Tebow went to my, my rival high school, and he's not that much older than me. So I remember watching him back when he played for Nice. So That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. But he's the keynote speaker, and you don't want to miss it. Tickets are only $25, so it's it's definitely worth it. 100% worth it. So we'll be sure to put links for everything in the show notes so you can register for the march or get tickets for the dinner. Um, the march is totally free. It's just that the dinner with Tim Tebow that you would need a ticket for. And then you can also visit marchforlife.org. They have all of the information on their website, a really helpful like Q&A sheet about like what's the march going to look like this year. So be sure to check it out. But we have an awesome show. I'm so excited for today. Lauren, what do we have queued up? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Jessica Anderson, the Director of Heritage Action for America, to get her reactions to the inaugural address and her insight on what policies we can expect from President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. And Jessica explains why 2020 really was the year of the woman. Plus, we welcome our colleague, Elena Richardson, director of Heritage's intern program and the new Heritage Academy to the show to discuss an exciting new way for high school and college students to get involved in public policy. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that have particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. (laughs) 
We are so excited to welcome back to the show Jessica Anderson, the Executive Director of Heritage Action for America. Jessica has served in the Trump administration for a time as the Associate Director of Intergovernmental Affairs and Strategic Initiatives for the Office of Management and Budget, and she frequently appears on a number of major networks, including Fox News. Jessica, welcome back to the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. So let's begin by just talking about your reactions to what happened yesterday. Former Vice President Joe Biden became President Joe Biden. So what were your thoughts on Biden's inaugural address and the events of yesterday? Wow. Well, what a day it was. A lot of emotions going throughout the day for sure, just both on a personal level of living here in the district in Washington, D.C., and then just on a professional level of, of, of recognizing so much is changing. And I'm reminded that there really are no permanent victories, just as there are no permanent failures in this town. Everything comes and goes every four years. And that couldn't be more stark or more true when you look at the contrast between, you know, former President Trump's legislative agenda and the legislative governing agenda that's now being put forward from Biden. And so while it was a day of pomp and circumstance and you know America flag waving and calls for unity and hope i think underneath a lot of this really good and nice sounding rhetoric was the reality of a very destructive legislative policy agenda and i'm very eager for us to get back into the fight and start recognizing that Biden's priorities need to be about creating jobs, not taking them away, to be about reopening the economy, not shutting it down, to be about removing regulations so that we've got more health care and the vaccine to more people that want it. And so I think as day two begins, this is really the task at hand. But the day itself was was fine. It was nice to see some snowflakes. And it was certainly nice that it's now in our rearview mirror and we can get to work. Yeah, no, Jess, I love that. Like always moving forward. One thing I love about Heritage Action, this inauguration looked a lot different than inaugurations in the past. Uh, I know you went to the inauguration in 2016 of President Trump and there were lots of people, but, you know, due to COVID and security concerns, there was 20,000 National Guard troops. And it's so funny to me, the citizens of D.C., what with all these National Guards, one of my favorite new trends is on TikTok. Women of DC are just scrolling, but it's just National Guard <laughs> after National Guard. <laughs> it's like um, it's like Fleet Week, right? When Fleet yeah. Week goes to, to New York City, it's like Fleet Week for the twenty-somethings in DC. You know, I mean, look, I I I, t- I take the humor in it. I think it's important that we find some humor to talk about these days. Otherwise, we'll, we're just going to go crazy. But. The reality is, is that we have we had an inauguration with the backdrop of the National Guard that flanked the road that the president uh, and the vice president would normally walk with a cheering crowd that was wildly absent. And in place of it was was our nation's military. And, you know, first and foremost, you know, we thank the troops. They're there because it's their job to be there. My husband is former military. It was our job to be in places like that. I get it. But the reality is, is that. It, it's it's really reflective of a little bit of the cloud that is over this entire inauguration process just because of how things have gone down and what this transition of power has looked like. But we're here. We're where we are. It's day two. President Trump has left the White House for, you know, arguably the, the final time. 
And I think as conservatives, we're in a place today where we realize that it would be a complete mistake to forget the issues that brought Trump to Washington in 2016 in the first place. I mean, he came because millions of Americans across the country were unhappy with the state of the economy, unhappy with political correctness, illegal immigration, America's role in the world and the international stage. And these concerns aren't going away. For Biden to be successful, he has to address these issues. And I think that we are all going to be looking very closely at at what he does on each of these main points um, as we get into the business of the legislative agenda ahead. Well, I think we are all watching now President Biden and, and asking that question of, okay, what are his legislative priorities, his policy priorities really going to be? And I wonder if he maybe gave us a little bit of a clue into that during um, during his address on Wednesday. I want to play just one minute of his speech for you. Let's take a listen. Few people in our nation's history have been more challenged or found a time more challenging or difficult than the time we're in now. Once in a century virus that silently stalks the country has taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. A cry for survival comes from planet itself, a cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism, that we must confront and we will defeat. So, Jessica, your reaction, what do you think that these remarks can tell us about uh, Biden's priorities as, you know, he referenced things like fighting the pandemic, but then also, you know, the issue of of racial justice and really pushing back on that and things like climate change? First off, there's nothing wrong with having a aggressive agenda for the first 100 days of any presidency. We have seen that historically the last 200 years. It is a part of when power changes. So there's nothing wrong with having a big, bold agenda. What I have a problem with, though, and what I think is concerning to conservatives and and freedom-loving Americans across the country is that Biden's agenda is, is wrapped around failed policies of the Obama administration. I mean, other than COVID-19, everything that um, he is describing are things that we we know how the story ends. We know what the results are. These measures are misguided. Um, they're destructive at times and at places. And at a point in our moments in our country's history and a, and a moment for each of us where we should be looking for opportunities to give Americans more jobs, to open up and to support our economy, our families, our American institutions, this is a far left progressive agenda that he's putting forward. I mean, look at, you know, climate change and that the fact that he has signaled that he wants the United States to enter back in to the Paris uh, Climate Accords. I mean, this is about shutting down American jobs 
with really no climate impact. Same with the Keystone Pipeline. These are thousands of jobs of engineers, of construction workers, all at risk, all lost amidst the backdrop of a pandemic. And you look at COVID-19 and these ideas of a mask challenge or a mask mandate. And, you know, I have to wonder, has he read the science about masks? And has he read the science about the best way that we can have a targeted scientific approach? I mean, I'd love to get him some heritage products so he can get smart on this. I mean, he's missing so much of what good could be happening right now. So it's unfortunate. I think I think those elements of his speech were divisive and destructive instead of um, trying to pull people together. And I think it's a preview of, of what's likely the next four years. But again, as I said at the beginning, nothing is permanent in Washington. And that's going to be true with Biden's um, governing agenda. And as conservatives, we're going to have to fight hard uh, to rebuild the conservative movement where it's needed and to get off the mat and, and, and block and tackle some of these destructive policies. Well, Jess, I'm so glad you brought up the Paris Climate Accord. And we're recording this Wednesday afternoon after the inauguration. And this isn't, you know, month one priority. This is day one priority. He is planning on signing executive orders to really undo some of these policies of the Trump administration. Uh, can you let us know some other examples of that? Yes. And he's been pretty clear. You know, Biden's chief of staff had a memo out over the weekend that outlined exactly what they're going to do and that where he they plan to use executive orders. So we mentioned the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, also, he's looking at rescinding the Keystone Pipeline Permit. Um, this is a huge job. This will be a huge job killer. It'll make us more dependent on foreign energy. It, it basically walks back all the good that the Trump administration did um, on our energy independence. It looks like there's going to be massive, massive changes to our border security, both from an, an illegal immigration standpoint. Last I saw, it looks like he's trying to give citizenship to 11 million illegal immigrants that are here in this country, to everything from halting the constructions of the border wall. There's comments out today about an executive order funding sanctuary cities, which we all know is a hotbed for an unconstitutional way to harbor illegal immigrants on the backs of our cities. And so, you know, that it's a long list. Um, there's rumors about the Iran deal and whether or not we would re-enter that. Obviously, there's a lot of flaws in the Iran deal when you look at the two main tenets of it, that it does not allow United Nations inspectors to inspect the Iran nuclear facilities, nor does it handle ballistic missiles. So I'm not really sure how you could have a deal with Iran that's meant to limit nuclear power when you don't tackle ballistic missiles, which is one of the main ways um, you can you destroy and have nuclear wars. So, you know, these are, again, failed misguided policies of the past. They do not have an eye towards unity. They certainly don't have an eye about going forward. And I think it's a mistake for him to lead by that. And on the tactic that he's using, I think the tactic itself, that this is essentially an executive order uh, dump, if you will, or an, or an executive order, um, uh, you know, kind of binger, this is why he has to do this, because executive orders skirt the legislative process. They go around Congress. They go around the American people. And it's easy to legislate 
by pen because you don't have to do the hard work of of debate and and the legislative process with members. So I think it's it's revealing that he's choosing to do so many executive orders instead of putting these through the legislative process, which, by the way, the Democrat Party is in control of. Let's not forget, it's a Democrat-controlled House and Senate right now. So time will tell. But I think at the end of the day, what we're looking at here is 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 very destructive policies on day one and the first hundred days that conservatives should be should be alerted to um, and do everything in our power to stand against them. Well, and I know, Jessica, for me personally, I've been thinking a lot about just what does the future hold for the economy? You know, several of my family members are small business owners and I'm frankly just a little bit worried about, okay, you know, what are the actions that the Biden administration will take to actually cause harm to the economy and move backwards on that progress that Trump made? Will we see a repeal of the tax cuts? What do you think we can expect from Biden regarding his economic policy? Well, that's a good question. It's definitely something that is top of mind. Um, The first thing on his list, though, is this $1.9 trillion COVID economic recovery package, as he has called it. If you look closely at it, though, you see that this is really a, a wish list of the progressive policy goals that the left has had what their $350 million worth of state bailouts, the $15 minimum wage, bills on voting rights that are tucked in that would hollow out state election integrity laws. I mean, this is basically his list all kind of packaged nicely underneath this $1.9 trillion. But it's interesting because um, it's really going to be a game of, of numbers. You've got his proposal of $1.9 trillion. We have already spent $3.5 trillion and this is all in comparison to the 900 billion that was spent during the financial recovery period so when you just look at how much the country is spending on covid relief it ellipses over the 900 billion that was spent for you know the federal government's bailout of the financial industry which at the time we thought was the worst of the worst so it is a new level of spending it is a new level of spending without Um, thought to debt or thought to targeted relief. Um, And it's unfortunate because this is going to be a pattern I think we're going to see from him. I mean, we were talking the other day about this 15 minimum wage with some friends of mine, like when the economy is at its best and it's a free market-based economy and it's working to produce jobs and to keep jobs and to reach the labor market, people are making minimum wages of $15 because it it rises to that. You don't need to have this strenuous top-down approach when it comes to economics. So, you know, he will to repeal much of the tax cuts and we'll have to go through Congress. Does he present a plan like that soon? Probably. But first on his docket is this $1.9 trillion, trying to get it passed under the skies of economic recovery. But we know that this is these are misguided policies, more spending, and not even all of it is related to COVID. Well, speaking of Congress, not only did the presidential office switch parties today, the Senate switch parties um, with the swearing in of the new senators from Georgia. Uh, what is the best and the worst case scenario now that both houses of the legislature are Democrat controlled? Well, it's a 50-50 in the Senate with Kamala Harris um, breaking the tie And then you have a very slim majority in the Democrat-controlled House where you have Speaker Pelosi now continuing to to reign 
And you have her in a position to exhort an insane amount of power over the committees and the processes of bills moving. So I think at the end of the day, conservatives are going to have to rely on some uh, legislative procedures, uh, whether that's trying to 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 block things at the committee level or motions to recommit when they get to the floor, um, but leveraging and using every single procedural and legislative tool basically in the toolbox to stop the agenda where they can is important. But then the second strategic thing that I think is we're going to end up spending a lot of time talking about is, you know, where do, where are moderates? When you look at pre-Tea Party, you had blue dog Democrats that were, you know, in it, kind of in the space that Joe Manchin is today. I mean, we don't call him that anymore, but blue dogs were a thing, um, you know, 10 plus years ago. And so the question becomes, do the moderates, the problem solving caucus in the House, the Joe Manchin, Cinema tester in the Senate, what do they do? And are they in tune with their own constituents and their own base? Um, and, and do they stand up to it? I mean, Joe Manchin was the one that stood up to the Democrat Party and said, we are not a party that goes after the police. The defund the police movement, that's not us, guys. Hello, reminder. So so there is an element here I think that we should be very mindful of when you look at um, the moderate wave and what do they do and, and, and how do they um, pull the legislative agenda to the middle. That said, I think Biden is going to have a hard time keeping all of those different factions within the Democrat Party and the liberal agenda in place because he has moderates on one side and then he has the squad on the other, and he's going to try to keep it all together and intact and have a, a governing agenda. And I think that Biden led a very intentional campaign talking to American voters that he would be a middle of the road president. But if we look at you know day one and day two activities, he really is embracing the worst ideas of the left. And we're going to have to see, does he go more extreme than the Obama years? Um, does he try to bring the party back to the middle? And, and we just don't know that yet. Well, and of course, you know, he's spoken so much about unity. We saw that during his address on Wednesday. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and, you know, hope that that those words do become actions and that, like you say, he does really seek a little bit more of that middle of the road approach. But we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, Jessica, I want to ask just to to lighten it up a little bit. I want to ask you about <laughs> about the fashion that we saw on inauguration day. There were so many so many ladies on that stage, all looking lovely. What were your thoughts on on what we saw, and also just how how the media has um, has treated some of these uh, left of the aisle? Uh, women uh, versus what we've seen from women's magazines and their treatment of conservative women. Well, finally, a topic we can all agree on. Here, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wild. I mean, honestly, the the women's magazine world from the last four years has basically ignored Melania Trump, arguably one of the most fashionable first ladies that we have had since Jackie Kennedy. I mean, the the girl just looks good, and so you have that. And then you now have Vogue and other women's magazines eager to put Vice President Harris on their covers for her fashion choices. 
And that's the first thing out the gate. I mean, it's like they just decided again to cover politics. We know that's not true. They willfully ignored her. And it's a sad moment, I think, when you see women's magazines only highlight one type of woman. They were silent during Justice Amy Coney Barrett's trials, talking about her and how you could be a working mom today. They've really lost all credibility, I think, to talk about women's issues because they ignore all other women in the country that don't think like them. So I think that's one. Two, it was interesting to see kind of the split screen today where you had all of the kind of CNN talking heads talking about how just radiant everyone looked and their choice of designers and, you know, politics by fashion and all of that. It's like all of this now has come back and is in vogue. But it really just shows to me the hypocrisy of the entire industry. And I'm not sure that we can think of them as, as credible. And, and furthermore, I'm not even sure that the, that the far left even agrees with it because they were complaining about Vice President Harris's faux coverage because she was you know, in her sneakers and a suit and didn't look as glamorous as they thought she should. So you really can't ever please the liberal left when it comes to these things. So my motto, why even try? <laughs> <laughs> well, and you wrote... Probably my favorite article that I've read in 2021 so far, and I don't think I've even told you yet, it inspired me so much that I am working on a heritage video for it. And it's the year of the conservative woman. And the Mm. first line reads, 2020, the year of the woman for real this time. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yes. And you're so sweet. It's That's been such a, a, a passion project of mine, if you will, because I think what's happened is, is as we've allowed women's magazines and mainstream media to define what it means to be a woman, we've given away so much of the, um, so much of the terms we've given so much of what it means to be a female conservative. And so I wrote this piece with an eye towards that of everything we learned with justice Barrett of that. You could be a working mom and ascend to the highest um, you know, legal spot and, and, and legal role in the land. And you could do it with your lovely children behind you and your husband standing as a partner beside you. And you didn't have to be like mean about it, right? Like you didn't have to be cold. You could be smart. I mean, that moment when Judge, Judge Barrett at the time held up her blank notebook, right? When they were asking, what are the notes? I mean, that was just a moment where you're like, wow, this girl's got it together. And so I, I, what I really want us to recognize is that, you know, the beginnings of the feminist movement are not the feminism that you see today. We are so far from where things began. If anything, we need a reformation of returning back. And so I, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from, from Justice Barrett. I think there's a lot that we can learn from other women that are conservative leaders in Washington and, and on the on the on the national stage, and we should look to them, um, and we should look to them in the same way that we look to liberal women and recognize that there are role models um, that look differently, and that conservative women have stepped up to the plate. Look at the the huge gains in the House. I mean, these are good things to have women making political and policy decisions. Because women have just as much ability to be in the room as men do. I mean, this is this is what this is about and having the choice. You don't have to choose one or the other. You don't have to choose having a family or having a career. You can simply choose to have both if you want or have neither if you want. <laughs> I love it so much. And I love to, in your article, you talk about how the founders of 
feminism and in the United States really looked to the founders of our country. And then they, you know, they wrote that all men and women are created equal. And, but I do have to admit, I did make one little edit when I was taking your, your article and getting all excited. I made it 2021 is the year of the woman. And I'm <laughs> claiming this year too. Yeah. <laughs> Let's claim it. Let's just take it back. I mean, right? Like, the Susan B. Anthony kind of movement and what she means for, you know, legal rights and equal treatment under the law. I mean, this is this is where we are today. And, you know, I think that to just allow the left to own the women's movement is a mistake because there's so many of us conservative women that are trying to make a difference and that it's not about um, these false choices. It's 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 really about having new role models that can lead and and prove that you can have an empowering career and a family and you don't have to be radicalized, right? You don't have to be radicalized to be empowered. Yeah. Oh, so good. Jessica, thank you. For all of our listeners, if you like what Jessica is saying, be sure to follow her on Twitter at Jessica Anderson too. You can also visit the Heritage Action for America website at heritageaction.com. There's tons of awesome resources and information on there about how you can get involved politically in your own community, right in your own town. So be sure to check that out. But Jessica, we are just so thankful for your time today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Stay tuned because up next, we will be chatting with Heritage's Elena Richardson about a unique way high school and college students can learn more about political science and our nation's history. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my other favorite podcasts. It's called Heritage Explains. Host Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher break down the big policy debates that you hear about in the news at a 101 level. Using news clips and music, they tell a story, but they also bring in heritage experts to explain complex issues. Anytime I listen to Heritage Explains, I walk away with a better understanding of an issue that's facing our country today. So go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to Heritage Explains. We are excited to welcome our colleague, Elena Richardson, to the show. Elena is the director of the Young Leaders Program here at the Heritage Foundation, which is also known as Heritage's Intern Program, and she's also managed the rollout of a really exciting new program called the Academy. Welcome. Thanks, Lauren and Virginia, for having me. Elena, as a former intern, I have lots of memories of sitting in briefings with you and hearing you speak and being inspired by your story. But I have one also really funny memory. As interns at Heritage, we go through sort of a, almost like a professional etiquette session. <laughs> and so I remember you teaching all of us interns, there was like 60 of us, how to give a really professional handshake, which before COVID was like a really important professional skill to possess. I don't know what it's going to be after COVID. I don't know if, you know, professional elbow bumps will be like a thing, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you for teaching me how to give a strong professional handshake. I can't tell you how many awkward, you know, because I'm at the front of the room looking at the 60 interns, you know, trying to give handshakes with each other. And <laughs> it's so funny sometimes how people will like, you know, they, they might think that they have clammy hands or maybe they for sure know that they have clammy hands. And so you see them 
rubbing their hand all the way down their pants you know, before practicing. And then the look on the other person's face is always the funniest look. Um, to be like, wait, should I be concerned? But, you know, it's funny because the handshake, I, I've actually recently thought about that, especially now with COVID. You know, the handshake used to really say like, you know, like you have my word, right? Like I'm, you know, an honest person or, you know, just like that show of camaraderie. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. And even so, you know, with masks and stuff, you know, I, I've started recently joking, saying, smile through your eyes. I've said that to people too. Yeah. <laughs> so that, do you guys remember America's Next Top Model back in the day? That's like what Tyra Banks. Yeah. She used to tell all the girls, smile, smile through your eyes. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're going to have to do. And, you know, I will say, I think uh, I have a little bit of like crow's feet right, right by my eyes. I think it's because I have a you know, a happy life. And, um, but we're going to see a lot more of that. Maybe I should invest in some, some more moisturizer and, and cream. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Oh. yeah. All the eye makeup right now. And like, it doesn't <laughs> matter. Lipstick, no more. It's out. <laughs> yeah. The lipstick. Well, speaking of COVID, I mean, last March, like the whole world, uh, we all went online and Heritage has become really creative about the ways that we are investing in the next generation. Uh, we have a really active intern program. And, you know, like Virginia men mentioned before, we would host a lot of their sessions in the building, but that all kind of went out the window. And your team had to think quickly and outside the box when when COVID came and hit. So can you tell us a little bit about the Academy and what, what are those changes um, and what is the good that's coming out of it? You know, Lauren, it really allowed us the opportunity to be innovative and um, just think quickly. And I think that's, you know, you know, when you think of the Heritage Foundation, a lot of people don't realize that we are very innovative on the inside. And I think we're always trying to think about how can we reach more people? How can we be, um, you know, investing in the future? And more so, how are we then reaching, you know, the younger, the younger generation and how are we investing in them? And so that's why as the director of the Young Leaders Program, it was, you know, a, a hefty task, right? Like it was, it was definitely something that we took very seriously. And although we did end up having to cancel our summer internship because it was just too quick of a turnaround to set up everyone up virtually um, when it comes down to computers and, and all the needs and just actually understanding what does working from home mean for every single person in the building and what does, you know, accommodating um, you know, team needs and the the breakdown as a whole. But we were able to launch the Academy. The Academy started in May and welcomed actually 200 participants. Um, we had quite the showing of international participants. I think in the first class, there was actually only five. Um, in the second class, we're now on the third class. In the second class, there were 20 international participants. And right now there's 18 international participants. And so um, that's actually been a really interesting thing because we had never really had those types of numbers when it came down to our internship. The Academy is really seen as that 101 in public policy. So when you're asking, well, what is it about, you know, tech policy, technology policy that I should be aware of? Or, you know, it is, um, you know, national security really affected by the Chinese? What does that actually mean? And so you're able to meet one-on-one -on -one with scholars 
um, in a webinar format with just the academy participants to hear, you know, from that policy scholars themselves. And so the way that we do this is we do uh, two pre-recorded videos of the content, and then we offer live question and answer periods. Um, additionally, every other week, we do small group discussions. So we break you up based off of interest. So I'm actually going to be jumping on a call pretty soon on young professionals, right? So all of our young professionals will be joining a cohort discussion to talk about the week, to talk about things that they're learning in the academy, as well as what's what's essentially impacting them, what's, a, what's impacting their family. And we're able to have these small group discussions and really kind of focus on that community, um, which I think is really important, especially in these COVID times. But I want to say, you know, it really allowed us to be nimble. We were really able to test and learn. Um, and so just in 2020, we trained up over 400 people in the academy alone. Um, now for 2021, we have gone back. We're completely virtual when it comes down to the internship right now. We hope to eventually come back in person. Um, but the academy as a whole will be a perfect, you know, kind of precursor to the internship. So it's a 101 to the interns 201. Um, it's a, the internship is definitely a deeper dive, but the academy, what's also really nice is that it ranges in age from 16 years of age. So we welcome high schoolers all the way to 40 years of age, which we have never really offered a program that reaches such a wide audience. So tell us some more about the practicals. I mean, how much does it cost? How can I apply? How much time will it take me every week if I sign up? Sure. So what's really great is that heritage programming is free, right? So we pride ourselves in, in giving access to everyone, right? You just need to apply. Um, and so the application, you can see the application heritage.org backslash the dash academy. And the application as a whole, right, it is a couple of essays. We just want to get to know you. Um, we asked for two references. So we're not asking for letters of recommendation. It's just two people who could speak to your wanting um, to improve your leadership skills and um, your commitment. And roughly it's about three hours a week, right? So those two pre-recorded uh, videos will range from 20 minutes to an hour. And then the live Q&A sessions are an hour each. And then every other week would be a one-hour cohort meeting. Um, what's also interesting that I didn't mention was the fact that, you know, in the internship, it really is almost like 40 hours a week, right? You're really invested. You're really working kind of day in, day out on, um, on research and or communications or outreach. But the academy actually still provides um, an optional capstone project, right, where you could present to a heritage scholar or professional, um, you know, on issue areas. So for example, we actually had someone present to the communications team, a website for college students, right? How do you, how do you kind of uh, take some of our, our content and how do you make it then more relevant to college students? So we're working with Academy fellows on their capstones. So we can then not only improve our reach, but then also that we can see their passions. And I think that's another really exciting opportunity. Well, in a I am so proud of you and your team for, for what you've built in such a short time. And I'm so excited to see the Academy grow. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? 
the Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinars and register, visit heritage.org events. Now it's that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to you. All of you, our listeners, are all the problematic woman of the week. We want to thank you for being such an amazing audience and truly a fantastic group of problematic women. Lauren and I want you all to know that our commitment to reporting on the issues that you care about, it's not going to change under a new administration or a Congress that is controlled by the left. We're going to keep speaking the truth and discussing those issues that you really care about that's on your heart and your mind as a conservative woman. Yes, Virginia, I could not say it better myself. And I think we will have plenty of stuff to talk about during this new administration. (laughs) Yes, to say the least. I think you're right, Lauren. All right. Well, now it is time for our Twitter question. So we want to thank everyone who engaged with the question last week. We asked you all to share who you wanted to hear from on this show in 2021. You all gave us some great answers. We hope to have many of those people that you all suggested on the show this year. And this week's Twitter question is, what policy issue are you most concerned about in 2021? So that question will be up on my Twitter. My handle is Virginia underscore Allen five. So be sure to comment. Let us know. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives do need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.